0: So the priests get together and say, look, we only have enough oil to burn this, this menorah, this lampstand for one day. But miraculously, as the story goes, the oil lasts not only the seven days needed for rededicating the temple, but an extra day, which leads to the eight nights of Hanukkah and we light our candles. Because of the miracle of the oil, we fry everything in oil for eight crazy nights. So that's the story of why everything's fried and why you have to dry clean your entire wardrobe in mid-December every year after the holidays.
1: Welcome to A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. I'm your host, Carly Berna,
0: And I'm Ezra Benjamin.
1: We're a Jew and a Gentile who both believe in Jesus and believe that God is doing something unique around the world, specifically with the Jewish people. We're here to inform you on matters affecting you in the Christian world. Uh, But if you listened last week, we talked about Christmas and Hanukkah, and this week we're going to talk about Christmas and Hanukkah again, uh, but focusing on something we both love, which is food and things to eat. Uh, So we're going to talk about different holiday foods you may have heard of from Christmas or from Hanukkah and explain the meaning behind them. So let's discuss. As I mentioned last week, we had our episode specifically about the differences between Christmas and Hanukkah. So if you didn't listen to that, go back and do that. And we also have a taste testing video uh, where Ezra and I both blind taste test Christmas and Hanukkah foods and have to guess which holiday it is. So you can see if Ezra keeps his winning streak up uh, or if I'm able to have any type of revenge. So from that video, one thing I learned, Ezra, is that most Hanukkah foods either are fried or have some type of onion flavor in them.
0: Right, Carly, this is super important. Um, Any any traditional Jewish home in North America is going to smell like uh, an old diner, kind of like onion, potato oily, until about Valentine's Day. And if it doesn't, then you haven't done something right. And if you really go for it, you can make the smells of Hanukkah endure all the way till Horem, which is in uh, around the first of March every year, about a month before Passover. But uh, I digress. Anyway, so yes, fried foods, lots of things uh, in oil, lots of potato. What's going on there? Part of that is uh, some European tradition, and the Jewish community that comes from Northern Europe, uh, after they left Israel, they they immigrated to parts of you know Poland, of Ukraine, of Russia, into Western Europe. Uh, that community, for those who may be less familiar with the terms, is called the Ashkenazi Jewish community. So if you ever hear that word, it's kind of a funny word. It sounds like like a like a cold, but Ashkenazi uh, just means Northern European. And so typical to northern European cuisine is going to be lots of onion, lots of potato, lots of kind of stick to your rib things so that our people could survive through the Siberian winters. So you got to put on all the fat in Hanukkah so you make it till Passover in spring. But uh, before we get into specifically the Ashkenazi uh, Hanukkah foods, why is everything fried in oil? Well, one, it tastes delicious. And two, it gives your mother and grandmother a reason to say, you've put on a little weight this year, haven't you? Which they always say after they push food for eight crazy nights. And then it's, you know, you're looking a little pudgy. But anyway, again, I digress. So why is everything fried? It goes back to the story of Hanukkah. And uh, listen to our episode about Christmas and Hanukkah. You'll get all the details there. But uh, in a nutshell, Hanukkah is the story of a foreign occupation of the Hebrews, Israelites, on their own land uh, a couple centuries before uh, Jesus was born in what we know as kind of the intertestamental period, after Malachi was written, after the Old Testament is finished, but before the New Testament begins. And these occupiers actually uh, sacrificed a pig in the temple in Jerusalem, um, which made the temple ceremonially unclean according to the Torah, according to God's commandments through Moses to the children of Israel. So Jewish people couldn't worship there. And Judah of the Maccabees, Judah Maccabeus, and that's where we get the term the Maccabees, which is actually the modern name of a lot of Israeli sports teams, the Maccabees, uh, or Maccabi in Hebrew. Yehuda Maccabeus became so incensed at this occupation and the desecration of the temple that he and kind of a ragtag army of people revolted against the occupiers victoriously, and we believe with the help of the hand of God, like so much of Israeli history and Jewish history kind of uh, a Jewish army that's outnumbered, but the Lord, because of his promises he made about the land and to the people, seemingly was on their side. And so they, they are victorious against this occupying army, and they march into Jerusalem, but they have a problem. Uh, even though they recapture Jerusalem and the temple, The temple is still ceremonially unclean because this pig had been sacrificed and the temple had been desecrated. And in order to ritually purify the temple for sacrifice, according to Torah, you have to burn this menorah, the lampstand in the temple for seven days. There's this seven day period of purification. So the priests get together and say, look, we only have enough oil to burn this this menorah, this lampstand for one day. But miraculously, as the story goes, the oil lasts not only the seven days needed for rededicating the temple, but an extra day. So eight days, which leads to the eight nights of Hanukkah, and we light our candles. And uh, in commemoration of the miracle of the oil, this oil that should never have lasted, but lasted uh, even more than the time necessary to rededicate the temple, we douse all of our foods for eight crazy nights in uh, polyunsaturated fat, or if you're kind of like, you know, a young urban professional, you use peanut oil and then you post on Facebook and Twitter how you use peanut oil, and then you feel uh, in your heart that you're better than uh, your Jewish neighbors who just used uh, vegetable oil. Again, I digress. Anyway, because of the miracle of the oil, we fry everything in oil for eight crazy nights. So that's the story of why everything's fried and why you have to dry clean your entire wardrobe in mid-December every year after the holiday ends.
1: So last week, I had my first latke. So I assume that's one of those fried foods. What are some of the major fried foods?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, Carly, let me say welcome to the mishpacha. Welcome to the family. Uh, I'm glad you you uh, tasted your first delicious fried potato, onion, egg, and garlic pancake. Potato latkes, uh, I think, are kind of the quintessential Hanukkah food, at least here in North America. And uh, why did I just say that? More on that in a minute. But Uh, Ashkenazi Jews, because, you know, what do you have in Russia in the winters, in the fall? You got potatoes and you got onions and you better do something with them before the ground freezes. So you kind of shred or mash or grate or whatever your tradition is. Uh, It almost looks like a hash brown on steroids. And then you deep fat fry this thing uh, in a skillet, in a pan. Some people do this outside because they don't want the odor in their house. Uh, I'm not going to judge them with my words, but I am judging them in my heart. Uh, Most people do this in your house and you make this potato pancake or potato latke as the northern European language would have it. And uh, you can put anything on these. You can put applesauce, you can put sour cream. We kind of have a tradition in my family uh, that we put cranberry sauce because usually Hanukkah's happening. uh, It happens as early as Thanksgiving Day and as late as uh, Christmas, New Year's week, depending on how the Hebrew calendar aligns with the Gregorian calendar. Uh, and those holidays every year. So what do you have around during this time as a condiment? You have cranberry sauce and uh, maybe, you know, my ancestors would be rolling over in their graves if they saw me putting some kind of, you know, Nantucket sour fruit on their potato latke. But anyway, it tastes delicious and you should try it. So uh, that's the potato latke quintessential. If you haven't had one, go down to your local kosher style restaurant this season and order one up.
1: So what are some of the other fried foods?
0: Yeah, so uh, moving kind of out of the Ashkenazi tradition for a minute and looking at the one of the other main uh, Jewish people groups in the world or sub-communities in the Jewish people, uh, and that's called Sephardic. No, I didn't just almost say a naughty word. Sephardic comes from the word... Sepharad, which is uh, in Hebrew what referred to um, kind of North Africa and the Mediterranean region. So after the Jews leave Israel a couple millennia ago, destruction of the Second Temple, this worldwide dispersion of, of Jewish communities, some went to Northern Europe and they became the Ashkenazi uh, or the Ashkenazim, and then others went to Sepharad, Spain, Portugal, Morocco. Uh, Tunisia these are called the Sephardic Jews and some ended up in Latin America Central South America Uh, there's a big community of Sephardic Jews in Mexico some of whom had to hide their identity for a few generations because of the influence of the Catholic Church and that identity is kind of re-emerging today as more and more people say hey I think my family's Jewish and here's why so the Sephardic communities eat another food which isn't necessarily exclusive to the Jewish community, but it's kind of synonymous with Hanukkah and the holiday season, and that's called a buñuelo. So if you think back, you know, you went to the state fair or wherever to a local carnival growing up, and you got a funnel cake, right, which was just dough, deep fat fried in oil, kind of thin, and then coated in copious amounts of cinnamon sugar. Uh, Same idea. A buñuelo is a typical Sephardic holiday food. You'll fry these up. Uh, You never make just one. You never make just 10. You make enough for uh, everybody in the family to eat until they enter a diabetic coma. And that's why you need coffee. More on that in a few minutes. But uh, the buñuelo, uh, friends of mine are Sephardic actually here in Phoenix where we uh, live. And uh, a few years ago on Christmas Eve, it was still Hanukkah time. So they said, let's have uh, kind of a Hanukkah slash Christmas Eve uh, family get together. My mom was in town and they made buñuelos. And my mom starts telling stories, you know, like a typical Jewish family would do. Ezra was in this musical when he was growing up. And Ezra got these scores on his test growing up. And she starts doing all of this, you know, the the family boasting, Carly, I stress eight, seven buñuelos. In a half hour. Like, I couldn't stop. I was like, this has to end now. And so to numb my emotions, seven. So my family's Ashkenazi, but that day I felt Sephardic. Anyway, those are the buñuelos.
1: And then another Hanukkah food I've heard of, I've never had, though, is a jelly donut.
0: Right. What's the deal with jelly donuts on Hanukkah? Why can't you just go down to Dunkin' Donuts and pick up your watery coffee with the awkward cream and get a jelly donut any day? Well, these aren't just any jelly donuts, Carly. They're typically more uh, round. And where did this come from? It didn't come from Boston with Duncan. It actually came from Poland uh, a few centuries ago and eventually made its way to Israel, where it's become synonymous with Hanukkah as the quintessential Israeli Hanukkah food. A big portion of the Israeli Jewish community a couple generations ago was from Russia and from Poland. And so the ponchik, or the Polish donut, which is, of course, as we know, you know, coated in sugar or powdered sugar and then filled with a raspberry, strawberry, whatever, European berry. I can't think of the berry that Ikea has, but that sauce that they sell and they pump the aroma of it through all of their stores, that also works in in a jelly donut. Anyway, this came from Poland and made it. Ah, lingonberry. That's what it is. Ikea pumps their stores full of lingonberry to subliminally convince you to buy more things. But you can also put it in a Hanukkah jelly donut. And uh, this made its way from Poland down into Israel and became what's known as sufganiot, which are just jelly donuts, Hanukkah jelly donuts in modern Hebrew. So anywhere you go on the streets of Israel during Hanukkah time, you're not going to find uh, bunuelos, most likely, other than in a few isolated communities, and you're not going to find potato latkes, even though that's what I grew up with, and that to me means Hanukkah. You're going to find jelly donuts. Every street corner, every kiosk, every grocery store is going to have these mounds of donuts, uh, which really become kind of disgusting about 20 minutes after they're out of the fryer, but we eat them anyway for eight days. And uh, this is the typical Israeli tradition. So latkes, bunuelos. Sufkan Yot Jelly Donuts, those are some of the fried foods of Hanukkah.
1: So then people are very familiar with, whether they've played it or not, that at Hanukkah there's this game that you play with a dreidel, and then I think uh, like kids exchange little chocolate coins or something, right?
0: Yeah, Carly, the coins are called Gelt, which is actually the word. It's still used, I think, in Germany, some other places. It's a Yiddish word or a Germanic word, and it just means money. It means coins. And so uh, in more modern tradition, you see these things made out of chocolate and there's delicious Hanukkah gelt and then there's the Hanukkah gelt you get at the dollar store which sort of like stick to the roof of your mouth and you can't get that off until uh, February just like you can't get the oil out of the walls of your home. So I recommend investing in the $1.99 gelt and not going for the 99 cent ones, you'll be sorry. But anyway, try the gelt. Why do we have coins? What the heck? Why are we keeping chocolate money around the house? And it goes back to the game of dreidel. So centuries ago in Europe, uh, in Jewish tradition, you're always trying to figure out how to tell the story of our people and you know more specifically the story of God's deliverance of our people throughout history to your children. But at the time during the pogroms and then even before that, other people who were hostile to Jewish communities didn't want Jewish people talking about Jewish things. And so Jewish community members developed the game of dreidel. And they would spin this dreidel, and to the people around who weren't familiar with what was happening, it just looked like gambling. It looked like they're playing a gambling game with their kids, and whoever wins gets some money. But what they were actually doing, because of the letters on the dreidel, it's an acronym in Hebrew, and it means Neskadol Hayasham, which means in English, a great miracle happened there. And so depending on which Uh, letter, the dreidel fell, you would either lose your chocolate coins or at that time your regular coins or you would gain them. And the kid's goal was always to get the gimel, the one that kind of looks, you know, it's pronounced like a G because that you think gimel, gimme. And so if you got the gimel, gimme everything, I win all the coins. But what these communities were really doing in playing this kind of gambling game was passing on the story of Hanukkah from generation to generation in a very secretive way. And so today, you know, you see it everywhere. Adam Sandler sings about it. Uh, you spin your dreidel, you get your coins, and the most delicious way to win that game is with chocolate gelt. So that's the deal.
1: And then another food I had for the first time last week, and I probably don't have enough phlegm in my throat to say this, is rugelach.
0: Yes. Let me try it. Here, I'm going to... Everybody ready? Rugelach. See, it has to sound like you have a severe sinus infection or something to say it right. Rugelach, or ragola, if you're a New York Jew, like my family is, Uh, Are these cream cheese based uh, pastries that look like little horns uh, and you fill it again as with pretty much every Jewish holiday dessert uh, with tons of brown sugar and raisins or walnuts and cinnamon and you roll these things up you make them the more cream cheese the better. Don't want to brag, but my mom definitely makes the best rugelach on the face of the earth. And if any of you want to try them, well, you can't because I'm going to eat them all. But I'm telling you, they're delicious. And that's another typical food. You see that all year round, actually, Carly. Uh, But especially at Hanukkah when we're all stuffing our faces with no regrets.
1: So are there any other Hanukkah foods that we didn't mention yet?
0: Yeah, lots of dairy, lots of fried foods. So cheese blintzes. Noodle kugel, Hanukkah honey balls, lots of fudge. I think in the Christian tradition, fudge is around at Christmas time all year, but especially Christmas and Hanukkah time as well. Uh, People are making lasagnas, lots of cheesy kind of dairy things. Challah, which is served on every Shabbat in many Jewish homes. You can put some cranberries in it. You can put orange in it. Uh, Chocolate babka is a super delicious bread. Again, cinnamon, sugar, chocolate. You roll the chocolate chips in, it probably has... 8,000 calories a loaf, but that's okay. I waited in line, I'll have you know, in um, uh, in Soho in Manhattan uh, a couple of years ago for a chocolate babka. And I waited and I waited when I was visiting friends uh, around Hanukkah time. And we got to the store and they had just sold their last babka. So I went down the street and to numb my emotions, I ate three slices of cheese pizza. Uh, but you know, chocolate babka is delicious. And if you're seeing a theme here, these are all very calorious, mostly fried, lots of butter, uh, probably lots of trans fats, but you know, tis the season. And it's kind of a running joke. What do you get on the eighth night of Hanukkah after seven other days of gifts? You get a gym membership and you get a bottle of Pepto-Bismol. And then you uh, try to reconcile what you've just done to yourself. As the chosen people, we have a responsibility to kind of go first in the world and be leaders. And so Whereas uh, most Christians are waiting till maybe New Year's morning to kind of go, oh, gosh, what have I had done? We're uh, doing that whenever Hanukkah ends in mid-December. So we get a jump on it and we get the better deals at the gyms. FYI, that's our little secret. But now, you know.
1: So are there any other uh, foods that you specifically had at, at Hanukkah, like just from your own upbringing?
0: Yeah, my family's Belarusian and Polish on my dad's side, uh, Polish Jewish and Belarusian Jewish. And so we ate pierogies, which aren't specifically a Jewish food, but they're kind of a wintry Polish food. So that's, again, dough wrapped around potato or meat and filled with lots of fat and then either boiled or fried or my personal favorite, both. And then, as if that wasn't enough, doused in sour cream and melted butter. So uh it's artery blocking goodness in a little dough pocket and i highly recommend you try them and then also uh i think you know it i I remember this cartoon growing up where there was a kind of a picture of a, a family celebrating christmas And, you know, the tree is lit and the kids are getting video games and, you know, there's a bicycle in the corner and everybody's happy and it's snowing outside. And then it says family celebrating Hanukkah. And it's like the menorah is the only light on and the kids are getting socks and college scholarships and they look, you know, like miserable. And so there's this sense in the Jewish community, even though we have eight nights and the Christians only have one morning uh, or an eve and a morning. There's the sense of we're missing out. So I remember to compensate for this, my mom would make what was almost definitely a Christmas sugar cookie recipe, but she would uh, use Hanukkah, like Jewish star or little Hanukkah menorah cookie cutters, and then ice them in blue and white if my brother and I didn't need all the icing first. And so those are some of the foods I grew up with, pierogies and Christmas sugar cookies made into Hanukkah ornaments.
1: You know, as you're talking about Hanukkah, I'm thinking what do Christmas foods have in common? Either it's a lot of sugar or it's something very strange, just kind of random.
0: Well, I wasn't going to say it, but I'm glad you broached the subject. So let's talk about strange, weird uh, Chris- Christmas foods that Christians eat. First of all, chestnuts. Uh, filming and Carly, I'm confused. Chestnuts. Yeah,
1: I, I actually, I, that's not a food that I ate a lot at Christmas, but it's definitely in a lot of Christmas carols. Um, chestnuts are one of the first foods eaten. They were cheap, So people could afford it Uh, in some of the research as I was reading it, it said that nuns in Tuscany traditionally prepared Christmas dessert with chestnuts. And then from there, it just kind of continued the tradition on. But yeah, definitely something that people associate with Christmas.
0: Right. I always see them, you know, I'm grocery shopping this time of year and you see that little like mesh sack of chestnuts and I'm always like, who buys this? But somebody obviously is or it wouldn't be there. Anyway. Okay. Chestnuts. All right. Well, let's get even weirder. Fruitcake. What's the deal with fruitcake?
1: Again, another super strange food. Um, But back when dried fruit became a thing centuries ago, uh, it was It was very expensive, and so because fruitcake was something that was so expensive, you had to get this dried fruit and make it, it was something that people thought of like an indulgence and something the wealthy did. Why it's related to Christmas, that I don't know, but I think that once fruitcakes became mass marketed, you know, now you can get like a catalog in the mail and order all sorts of kinds of fruitcakes, people aren't that interested. People don't think of fruitcakes as like for the wealthy. It's like the thing that your grandmother makes that you don't want to eat and you kind of avoid.
0: Right. You say, Oh, thanks. You shouldn't have. You, re- you really shouldn't have.
1: It. Right, yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. Okay. So those are two delicious foods. Let's go to the beverage department. Eggnog. Uh, two words that probably shouldn't go together ever, but I actually like eggnog. Tell us, tell us the story of eggnog.
1: Yeah. Interestingly, again, when I was reading a little bit about eggnog, it said that this was George Washington's favorite drink. So who knew that? I didn't. Um, and there was a tons of different stories about the history of eggnog. Uh, I won't go through all of them because some of them, who knows if they're true or not? You know, everything you read on the internet's true. So I couldn't really figure out what was true. Um, but one of them was talking about similar to fruitcakes that... Uh, eggnog was created at Christmas and again, considered a drink only for the wealthy because milk and eggs were expensive and, uh, the common people couldn't afford them. So, uh, eggnog was something that was, you know, again, an indul- an indulgence that people had made with milk, spices, or some type of alcohol added. Um, and then it came into America around the 18th century and not mass marketed. People still enjoy it. They sell it, you know, all the time. And, huge vats that I'm sure like Ezra buys, um, and drink it at Christmas.
0: Mm -hmm. Costco. The question is which relative in my family is going to spike the thing while nobody's looking, but I've said too much for this podcast anyways. So, okay. So we got eggnog, uh, one more Carly, the candy cane. This one I think has an interesting history. What's the story?
1: Yeah. Candy canes. It's like, you know, people hang them on their trees. They're, they're all over the place. Um, I know as someone who grew up in a Catholic church, it's like, here, eat this while Christmas Mass is going on so that you stay quiet. Um, And there is a story about how back in Germany, um, the leader of a choir would give the candy canes to keep his uh, choir boys silent during Christmas Mass. Um, But the candy cane can represent two things. I've seen one, just the J to represent Jesus. Um, And that the flavor of peppermint represents the purity of Jesus. So it can have that uh, as its explanation. Or I've also heard that the shape of the candy cane replicates uh, the shepherd's crook. So kind of, you know, when you think of a shepherd, what they're holding is that cane in their hand. Uh, So it has that greater uh, meaning behind it, whether or not people relate that, you know, when they're handing it to their kid to keep them quiet during church, who knows.
0: Right. Right. So, okay, those are interesting histories. Maybe even some, uh, some of our Christian listening audience didn't know exactly the history. We just know we either like it or avoid it like the bubonic. But uh, there you go. Some of these have been around since the bubonic. So, all right, Carly, a few others. Just uh, bullet point some other typical Christian Christmas foods uh, that we may be familiar or less familiar with.
1: Yeah, I think gingerbread, you know, making gingerbread houses is very popular. Same thing. It it seems like a lot of these foods were made for the wealthy at one point and then brought into what we call us, the common people. Uh, So same thing with gingerbread was once uh, very wealthy. Uh, The Yule Log, something you've uh, probably seen before, especially if you watch any type of baking show at this time, like any holiday baking championship show uh, many Yule logs are made. Um, but kind of the roots of that is that people would burn normal logs like in their fireplace to celebrate winter. Um, but as you know, houses got smaller, people would instead bake this cake that looked like, uh, the, the log and that would heat the house as well by making the Yule cake and then they can eat it also. Um, and then it became, you know, more popular. People started selling it in bakeries and making it now. Uh, to me, it looks very hard to make. Every time I see someone make it, it like splits in half and they're like crying and it's like a big deal. But that's for another another episode.
0: Another one. So and then the final kind of often a centerpiece on the Christmas table that you're probably not going to invite your Jewish friends or extended family to partake in. But it's an icon uh, gifted by companies to their employees country nationwide. Tell us about that.
1: Are you talking about the ham?
0: I certainly am.
1: Yeah, honey baked ham. Definitely a, a food people have at Christmas. I think, you know, we, we were talking about there's all sorts of meat. Obviously Hanukkah doesn't share ham in common. Um but brisket and prime rib and things like that uh people have on Christmas and ham is one of them. Um but then there is one meat that we both can agree on that are is ate at either Christmas or Hanukkah or Thanksgiving, which is the turkey.
0: That's right. That apolitical, inter-ecumenical bird raised for this season, I think. Who eats turkey the rest of the year other than in compressed lunch meat, high in nitrates? But this time of year, Jews and Christians alike, nationwide, maybe a little bit in Canada too, not sure, uh, share one uh, main dish in common, and that's, as you said, the turkey, whether you're brining it or stuffing it or basting it or deep frying it or deep frying it in peanut oil uh, to impress your neighbors and hopefully not start a house fire. Whatever it is, uh, I think, Carly, we can agree, Jews and Christians, uh, we all either like or at least tolerate a turkey in our homes. So there is a little bit of overlap, maybe more overlap than we think. And uh, while we're on that subject, One other thing uh, that we do agree on, and it's even more important than Turkey. If you can believe it, there's something more important than the holiday bird. And uh, that is what we believe, actually, what I believe, and I know you'd agree, Carly, is the most important thing that transcends uh, any one year's holiday season and actually endures to eternity, and that's our faith. Uh, As a Jewish believer in Jesus and as a Christian, uh, Carly, you and I agree that this is the season to remember as the days get shorter, as the temperatures drop, at least in our hemisphere, as the nights get longer, and especially this year, you know, with the pandemic, with political turmoil, everything just feels kind of dark. And what a great time to remember the light of the world uh, and that those who follow after him, namely Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And, you know, I, I, as a young adult, uh, was very much kind of in the Messianic Jewish community, most of my friends were Jewish believers, Jews who didn't necessarily believe but were open. Uh, and I had some Christian friends, too. But somehow when I was living in Chicago, I found myself every year at Handel's Messiah. And I think a lot of our audience is thinking, ah, the Messiah, right, it's a Christmas tradition. It's a Christian tradition. You go and you hear Handel's Messiah. But what you may not realize is the majority of the words in that uh, multi-part, uh, I don't even know what to call it, kind of uh more than a symphony. That that whole production, that work of art, now centuries old, actually comes from the Old Testament, not the New Testament. And one of my favorite parts of it, um, which we could all probably hum along with, but it actually comes from Isaiah 9. Uh, even though it's a Christian tradition, it's drawing from uh, a prophecy to Israel, centuries before the birth of Yeshua, during a dark time in Israel's history. And in Isaiah 9, Uh, Verse six, it says this, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in Jewish tradition, one of the main objections, Carly, to believing that Jesus is the Messiah is this idea that we say, you know, Adonai Echad, God is one. How can God exist in two forms, the Son and the Father? But right here, Isaiah saw it. He shall be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so Isaiah is seeing this arrival of one upon whose shoulders the government would rest, and he's seeing him at the same time as the Father and as the Prince. And then... Uh, verse 7 says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. I love that verse. Of the increase of his government and of the increase of his peace, his shalom that he brings, not just to the world, but more importantly, it starts in our hearts. uh, There will be no end. And then it says at the end of that verse, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And that, uh, I love all these holiday foods, but uh, beyond that and Because those things will go away and it'll be time to make New Year's resolutions and, you know, go back to the Daniel fast and go back to a paleo diet and try to lose the holiday pounds. But what is going to endure through the new year and what I hope for those listening will endure is our awareness and gratitude that during a dark time, God sent his son, the Messiah, to Israel, but not only to and for Israel but because he loved the the whole world and he loved it so much that he wasn't willing that any should perish, but that through Jesus all should come to everlasting life. And so that's as we're celebrating and eating lots of celebratory foods, Carly, that's what we're celebrating Jew and Gentile alike through our shared faith in Jesus, the Messiah. And it's the most important thing. I hope you listening at home know that too, that it really is Beyond all the foods, beyond all the traditions, beyond all the differences, it's the most important thing that brings us together.
1: Yeah, that's a great reminder. If, you know, we're, we're talking about histories of foods, and all of that is fun and interesting. But um, you know, the history behind these holidays is what's the most important thing uh, to both of us, and hopefully, many of the people listening as well. So, for those of you listening, um, thanks for. Spending a few minutes with us as we talk about Christmas and Hanukkah foods. Again, if you didn't catch our episode last week about the difference between the two holidays, go check that out. Um, Ezra and I are both going to talk about our favorite Christmas Christmas and Hanukkah foods in just a couple of minutes. Uh, But before we do that, uh, we have a way for you to get involved with us that Ezra is going to tell you about.
0: Yeah, Carly, one of the things I love doing, I know you love doing um, here on this podcast and through our partner ministries that we're supporting is sharing that most important thing with Jewish people and with their neighbors, Jew and Gentile alike. We know we all need a Savior. We all need a Messiah. And uh, one of my favorite things to do, and I'm I'm so uh, really thankful this season to be able to do this every day as part of my work, uh, is to be involved in the very important Uh, work of sharing Jesus with Jewish people around the world, and uh, especially Jewish people who are still in 2020 and beyond, not centuries ago, not decades ago, but still today suffering from isolation, from persecution, from being physically, verbally attacked just because of their Jewish identity. And we're out there uh, through partner ministries like Jewish Voice and others, uh, serving those communities in Jesus' name, earning the right to share that most important thing, the good news, the gospel. And if you want to be involved in that, uh, supporting us so we can support those ministries we stand in solidarity with, uh, get involved. All the details are on the website, aJewAndAGentileDiscuss.org. And as our thank you for that, uh, we want to send you some delicious coffee from a country near and dear to our hearts, Ethiopia, freshly ground for you to enjoy. And what better thing to wash down all of these highly caloric foods from? And what better way to stave off that diabetic coma after all these foods than drinking a delicious cup of coffee? Lost Tribes Coffee Company is our brand and the first flagship roast we wanna offer you this season is from Ethiopia called Bunabet, which means in Amharic Ethiopian coffee house. And that's our thank you to you for your partnership with us. Again, all the details are online, Discuss.org. Thanks for getting involved.
1: So Ezra, you know, we talked about all of these different uh, Christmas and Hanukkah foods. And I guess when I ask you what your favorite holiday food is, it could be from either holiday. If you think back, you know, even now or over your childhood, what has always been some of your favorite holiday foods?
0: yeah well as i mentioned one of my parents is jewish and the other is not so of course i'm going to have a mixed answer here but on the jewish side i love latkes and specifically now living in phoenix in the american southwest jalapeno latkes i know that sounds weird maybe gross to some try it before you knock it chop up some jalapeno mix it into the batter a little cayenne pepper uh, more spice more nice and then put sour cream on them super good And then on the Gentile side, we can say the non-Jewish side, I love eggnog. Can't exactly tell you why. Not going to tell you whether I like it with some additives or not, but let's just leave it at that. Eggnog with some fresh ground nutmeg. Mm -mm 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 -mm. Highly caloric, delicious. Hugs you from the inside. What about you, Carly?
1: Well, I think growing up, well, first off, I don't know if you remember these, but remember those like Pillsbury rolls of cookies where you just like cut it up and they're like tiny little circles like trees printed on them, though we had those all the time. Plus shortbread. Uh, I think it's like Walker's shortbread or something. It's like so buttery, it just melts in your mouth. Those were my favorite. Definitely. Now I am one of those millennials that eats a certain way. I won't even say how so that you can't make fun of me. So now it'd be something a little more clean eating. I will say I really enjoy stuffing though, and you can make it in a clean eating way. So that's probably my favorite holiday food now.
0: Very good. Carly makes almond butter, grass fed, uh, shortbread cookies. Uh, and we pretend that they're walkers. That's all I'll say about that. I'm not supposed to make fun. It's a holiday season. Goodwill towards men. So, okay. I'll stop there.
1: All right. Well, thanks so much for listening today. I hope you learned something. If you want to hear, uh, any more of our episodes, you can check us out wherever you subscribe to your podcast. Uh, you can leave a review, any comments or questions you have for us. You can also follow us on social media at the handle a jew and a gentile discuss or if you're interested in learning more about this podcast or how you can get involved you can find out all that information at a jew and a gentile discuss.org so thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week
0: hey if you're looking to get into the holiday spirit tune in to watch carly and i blind taste test different foods from christmas and hanukkah See who can determine which food belongs to which holiday. Watch online at a Jew and a Gentile Discuss.org. Merry Christmas and Happy Honey.
1: This show is a production of Jewish Voice Ministries International.